You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, a writer and researcher at MLB.com, joined by Matt Myers, MLB.com National Content Editor. Today is Thursday, March 17th, 2022. It is St. Patrick's Day, and oh my, has a lot happened since the last time we talked. Uh, We're going to be joined by Keegan Matheson, who's MLB.com's Blue Jays reporter in a little bit, to talk about all the moves Toronto has made. Like the rest of you, it is Thursday afternoon, and I am feverishly watching the sporting event that is causing me to try to not work. I am, of course, talking about the Twins Red Sox spring training game. I don't know what sporting events you might all be talking about, but I'm happy to have it on. Matt, I, I like we have a list of things to talk about, and I almost feel like I don't know where to start because about 700 different things have happened in the last week. And I, I guess the biggest one is, um, I don't know, is it Chris Bryant? Is that Freddie Freeman? Maybe it's Freddie Freeman. I think I think it's Freddie Freeman. Um, just the, I think I think it's the, the 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 combo of like the Braves trading for Matt Olson, basically acknowledging we are not bringing back Freddie Freeman, and then leading into Freddie Freeman ending up agreeing to a deal um, with the Dodgers. So I think that, that 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 I think it's Freddie Freeman as like a combo with the, with the Matt Olson trade. You can tell uh, baseball season is back because our colleague Andrew Simon is sending me messages about Franchi Cordero. <laughs> So, and hey, your boy Luis Perdomo is going to start tomorrow, right? This, this oh man, great. this is it's a, a long it's time so coming. Good. Now in a Brewers, now in a Brewers, uh, uh, Brewers uniform. Sadly, now when I wear my Luis Perdomo Padres jersey, I'll get weird looks because people will be like, "Isn't he on the Brewers now?" But you know, so be it. Yeah, like that didn't get you weird looks before. Hey, <laughs> Freddie Freeman is a Dodger. Uh, he signed last night. Well, I guess it's not official yet, but it will be six years, one hundred and sixty-two million dollars. There's a million different things I want to talk about here, but I, I think the thing that stands out to me the most is the support from John Heyman. We had heard a lot that the Rays were in on this, and I think everybody thought that it might be like a you know one year, 40 million kind of thing, and that's how they'd get in. He reported that the Rays were in up to six years and $150 million. And I was kind of blown away by that. I didn't think they would actually go that high, but he chose to go to LA. And I'm not sure what to say because I... I People are all, okay, they got Freddie Freeman. Freddie Freeman's amazing, and he is. And now this is going to be like the best team in baseball, and they will be. But they did just win 106 games, and they lost Corey Seager, who's a similar, if not, I don't know, maybe slightly better left-handed bat and is much younger. Like, I don't want to throw cold water on it because like, it's awesome. Freddie Freeman in that lineup is going to be hilariously good. I just think about like the fact that they had a lot that went wrong last year, right? Like, Look at the rotation. You know, Dustin May got hurt. Kershaw got hurt and Trevor Bauer got suspended, obviously. And Cody Bellinger had a terrible year and Seeger got hurt and they still won 106 games. Like the floor here is so ridiculously high that I don't want to say that Freeman doesn't move the needle in the same way as he might for other teams. But also this team was insanely good without him. Does that make any sense? It makes perfect sense. And I think, I mean, like Freeman just sort of like make sure that that floor stays that high. That's I mean that's that's the thing about the Dodgers. They're like the one team. This sounds crazy that I think has like is it crazy to say they've like 
a 92 win floor, or at least that's kind of how it feels. No, um, I, I, I don't have it in front of me, but so um, Fangraphs does the projections, but they also do like, oh, here, here, here we do the uh, percentile distributions, right? So the 25th percentile uh, for their win probability this year, what that basically means is that if you were to run the season like a thousand times, you know, what would be on the low, the 25th percentile of that, like the 75% of things had gone wrong, that's 94 wins. <laughs> Which is amazing. So, you know, I think that, that, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, Freddie sort of like maintains that level, right? And then that, you know, I think, and you, you know, you, you pointed out, you pointed out this, this tweet from our old friend, Alvin Gonzalez, um, about how their payroll situation still is like pretty good. They only have three players in the books beyond 2023, Betts, Freeman, and Chris Taylor, you know, Walker Bueller, Walker Bueller and Will Smith will have then sort of you know, they'll have to make a decision on them because there'll be arbitration approaching free agency. But like they've done a very good job as a franchise of sort of making sure that they don't end up with these like, you know, onerous like contracts that are sort of immovable. And and they've always allowed themselves even a lot of flexibility while carrying uh, a high payroll. And that flexibility goes to their roster too, right? Like, like on the field, it's like, okay, especially now they've got a DH. Okay, Freddie Freeman can play first base. Oh, and Max Muncy DHs. But then sometimes I guess Max Muncy can DH. And, you know, maybe Gavin Lux plays second base and Chris Taylor, who's going to be normally playing second base, moves to the outfield to give someone else a day off. So it's like they have a lot of pieces that can move around and um, – and really, you know, fit fit nicely together. Freddie uh, Max Muncy said today, second base is his favorite position, and he believes it's the one he plays best. I'm not sure if that's just a thing you say because now Freddie Freeman's on your team, <laughs> but it's a nice problem to have if you are Dave Roberts. Uh, is Gavin Lux going to get traded? Is he going to be the next guy who gets traded? Is he, like Frankie Montas is going to come back? I do feel like they're short of starting pitcher. I mean, you know, obviously. It- I mean, you'd, I don't want to, you know, obviously some of it depends on how the whole Bauer thing resolves itself, um, frankly, but like, um, but yes, the, the, the starting pitching depth isn't, isn't great. So yeah, they, and they, they certainly, even though they've also traded, you know, they traded prospects last year to get Max Scherzer, um, but they still have a decent farm system. So they have, they're well positioned to add to their roster as the season progresses. Our, our friend Andrew Simon pointed me to this, to, you know, the that Scherzer thing reminds me. Um, our friend Andrew Simon pointed this out to me. He said that that just speaks to the amount of star power the Dodgers have added in recent years. Freddie Freeman would rank only sixth in war among active Dodgers that they've acquired since the 2018 trade deadline. I mean, obviously Pools, Kershaw, who they've resigned, Max Scherzer, Mookie Betts, Manny Machado, and he's barely ahead of David Price in career in career war. So like the the stars, the the iconic players coming through the um, the Dodgers has just sort of been like a revolving door basically at this point. I actually think you undersold their farm system. And you said something along the lines of they've still got a good farm system. They have an elite farm system. You know, it's well, like you look at the the various prospect rankings. It's like, you know, first, second, third. And my question is what is going on with Kenley Jansen? Have you heard like a word about him? It feels to me of all the free agents, he's the guy you've just had the absolute least, you know, buzz around. Yeah, I think, and this is this is purely my speculation. I think with someone like Kenley Kenley Jansen, I think like there's for a reliever like that, there's probably some value in waiting for an injury, as cynical as that is. Like the, his market could 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 pick up very quickly if uh, a key reliever on a prominent team gets hurt is going to miss significant time. And I imagine Kenley Jansen at this point in his career is someone who could get ready for the season quite quickly. So 
Um, that's just kind of my my speculation. Part of why he's probably just like waiting things out a little bit and see see if if anyone gets desperate. Yeah, there's one more name I want to put out there because I feel like people have forgotten about him a little bit. Bruce Dargaderol, who was one of the guys they got back when they traded uh, Kenta Maeda to Minnesota. It didn't actually do that much the last year or two. It was hurt. It was only okay. And then kind of late in the season, he started throwing this cutter. And in the playoffs, he looked absolutely unhittably dominant. And I feel like he's going to be the kind of guy who's going to be in for a total monster of a season. So the the Dodgers are not the only team in the West who've made a move. I know we got to get to the Matt Olson trade, but can we just go right to Chris Bryant? I'm so excited to talk about Chris Bryant in <laughs> the Rockies. I have you're going to have to stop me at some point. Otherwise, I'll just go on for like 45 minutes. Here is my existential crisis, right? Seven years and $182 million for Chris Bryant to the Rockies. And my first reaction is this is a good thing for the Rockies and Rockies fans, right? Like a a team that nobody thought would be any good and probably still won't be any good is making a big move, even though they're in this division with the Giants and the Dodgers and the Padres. And they're not just like sitting on their laurels, right? Like if they had gone through the winter and signed nobody and done nothing, we'd all crush them, right? We'd be like, you're not trying to win. This is the opposite of that. Like, great, wonderful, very good. You went and got a good player and you spent money to do it. And like, that's a good thing. But <laughs> I'm so confused. Like he he's a good player. He right? He's an above average player. His last four years at a 122 OPS plus, but he never really turned into the superstar we thought he'd be. Like his first three years, he had a 141 OPS plus. So you're giving $182 million to you're buying the 30s of a guy who is already not a third baseman. He's a left fielder now. And I feel like he's already in decline. And it does he make the team better. Yes. And like there's value in that and more interesting. Absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. And I'm just, I'm wondering if there's a little bit of like, Eric Hosmer happening here. So like Dan Samborski, uh, who does the Zips projections at Fangraphs, right? When he ran this a couple of weeks ago, he said that the the actual value of a deal that his system would say for Bryant, 67 million over four years, even though he predicted Dan did himself, that obviously wouldn't be enough. He would say, he said four years and 90 million. This is a lot, a lot more than that. And there's just a big part of me that wonders if this is just kind of the culmination of them wanting him for like the last decade. Remember, they would have drafted him in 2013 if the Cubs didn't do one pick ahead. They tried to trade Nolan Arenado for him a couple years ago. And maybe there's a little bit of, well, if you're going to get somebody to come to Colorado, you have to overpay him and that's fine. And again, I'm happy the money is spent, but I just don't understand the plan. How do you dump Nolan Arenado and then turn around and do this? It's so weird. I mean, that's that's the strange part. I agree with basically everything you said. Um, I mean, Brian has had such a, I don't want to say weird career trajectory because he's been a very good player. He won rookie of the year and then he won MVP the next year. And it looked like he was really on a hall of fame track. You know, he had like all like, there was like no reason. He checked all the boxes. It was just like, Oh, this guy's just going to be putting up like 35 to 40 home runs per year with, you know, putting up, you know, great baseball card numbers, 120 RBI. So probably one, 140 OPS plus regularly. Like this guy, you know, like lock it in. And as you, as you said, he's like, he's, He's been pretty consistently good. I mean, he was terrible in the 2020 pandemic shortened season, but like, even if you throw that out, he's been good. He's been, as you said, more of like a 120 OPS guy, 120, 130. I mean, it's funny in my head now, he actually kind of reminds me in some ways of his former teammate, Ben Zobrist, where it's like his value in that he can play a lot of positions and also hit, which like usually like utility, like hit hit at a high level, where it's usually like, you know, truly, true utility men. Um, 
don't really you usually kind of do they don't really hit like this um but like now he's 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 a very good player but for a team that you know right now Fangrass is projecting them to win 68 games so it's like it's great it just feels like we're gonna be back where we were with Arenado in two years where they're like uh we're trying to trade this guy and now he's got a full no trade clause so when he wants to be traded in two years when they're when they're not good like he's gonna be able to dictate where he goes (laughs) so it, it just seems like it seems not great. It's also like, it's a little, you know, I, I think about what's going on around baseball this week. It's like, I feel like in a rational world, it would have been like the Reds making this deal instead of like trading off their players, trading off like high priced veterans. Cause like they could have won the, they could have won the NL Central if they had a Chris Bryant. Whereas like the Rockies should have been out there being like, you know what, let's try and trade anyone we have who's kind of approaching free agency because we want to try and like rebuild. So it's just like, it just feels like the wrong time to be I mean, good for Chris Bryant, as you said, good for Chris Bro- Rockies fans. I know there's probably a lot of like, you know, eight to 12 year old Rockies fans who are psyched today. They're like, Chris Bryant's going to be out, be on my team. This is awesome. Like I, I totally get that. You know, as a thinking from like the perspective of a young fan, I totally get that. It just feels like it's not going to move the needle for them at all in a meaningful way. Yeah. And to be clear, again, I, I'm not saying that I wish the money just stayed in the checking account. You know, like I'm happy that they went out and did something cool. Uh, but I wanted to ask you a question, Matt, because this was posed to me yesterday. I was talking about this on Twitter a little bit with Ben Clemens, who is a writer at Fangraphs, is one of my favorites. He's been on the show before. And he was defending the move um, a lot more than I thought he would. And he posed to me a question. He's like, well, OK, what if you were reallocating the money? You know, so just to kind of pick three somewhat random names who are going to make about the same combined over the next year or two as Bryant will. He's like, would you have Chris Bryant or would you take John Gray, Rysel Iglesias and Avisela Garcia? And I thought to myself, well, there are some teams I'd rather just have Chris Bryant. Like if we're talking about the Brewers, you know, I, I want Chris Bryant. I want the multi-positional righty bat. I don't need the extra pitching. But the, the Rockies roster is so weak in so many places that if you can give me Garcia, who's somewhat worse than Bryant, but not like a ton worse, and two very good pitchers. I I think I'm taking the three guys, and I'm wondering what your opinion is. Um, I I'm, I'm I'm I see his argument, but I'm but I'm with you. I mean, I still neither of those teams is gonna is gonna compete for a playoff spot. But I think that that version gives you a lot more roster flexibility. So like when you know you can you could probably move those guys in, in smaller deals. Like you know at this point now now that here's the thing is like if they want to trade if they do end up wanting to trade Chris Bryant in a couple of years and you know it it already feels like kind of kind of a fait accompli like it's going to be really hard to do because he's got a no trade clause and he makes a lot of money so i think that's you know the the long-term roster flexibility uh piece of it i think is is actually significant yeah absolutely and and to briefly defend the rockies here too i think they unfairly get pegged as being cheap a lot and that's because of uh of what happened with arenado certainly and that they just didn't do much in free agency over the last year or two. I think they probably got hit harder by the pandemic than most teams because they really do draw very well in Coors Field. But if you go back over the previous winners, they have spent, right? Like, obviously, they did sign Arenado to that deal in the first place. You know, they went out and they added Ian Desmond and they spent over $100 million on all those relievers like Wade Davis and Jake McGee and Brian Shaw and went out and got Daniel Murphy. And it's not that they didn't spend, it's just that it almost never worked out like ever. They always made decisions that maybe weren't the right decisions and not in retrospect, like on the day Ian Desmond signed, everybody's like, what on earth are you doing? And so I think that's kind of my main takeaway here is add players, spend money. Great, great, great. I don't know if I want to buy the decline years of a guy who doesn't necessarily fit any plan of yours. I can see, but I, I can tell you this. I'm excited to see what the reverse course field effect will be. We always talk about guys leaving cores. Will they still be able to hit? 
well, there's never a guy like Bryant who goes there in his prime. So I'm pretty excited to see that. Okay, we got to go back to the Braves. I know they lost Freddie Freeman. Um, they traded for Matt Olson and then they signed Matt Olson. And I think it's kind of hard to divorce this one, maybe the head from the heart, if you are a Braves fan, right? Because like Freddie Freeman is an absolute legend there, no doubt about it. He's been there since uh, 2010. His last swing was a home run in the World Series. Like it's hard to do better than that. He should have been an all-time Brave. I don't know if they have statues outside the park, but if they were going to, he should be one of them. And now Matt Olson is there and they had to trade four prospects to get him. And I kind of think I like this deal a lot. Like I really do. Olsen and Freeman are essentially the same player, right? Like lefty swingers, very good defensive first baseman, uh, similar production overall. It's, it's There's a bit of a different shape, right? Like Freeman is maybe a better all-field line drive hitter. Olsen has better top-end power, but he's almost five years younger. And when you look at what he, not only that, he's a native of Atlanta. He grew up in Lilburn, Georgia. And what I, what I think they've done basically is they said, okay, we're going to trade some prospects, which we'll talk about in a minute. We are going to magically turn Freddie Freeman five years younger. And because Olsen isn't a free agent for a couple of years, we're going to make sure his AAV is several million dollars less per season for a younger age than Freddie Freeman actually got. And if you can forget the fact that Freddie Freeman is an all-time Braves legend, which I get is a big deal here. I, I kind of like what they've done. I'm a little more lukewarm on it. I think I, 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 I am of the belief that that you, Freeman is is a is a unique type of hitter. There aren't that many hitters like Freddie Freeman in baseball right now. Um, guys who don't strike out a lot and also hit for power. You know, there there are sixty eight players with a strikeout rate below twenty percent over the last three years with a minimum of one thousand plate appearances. He was second in weighted weighted runs created plus and slugging in that group behind only Juan Soto. Right, Olson is kind of your more classic like kind of like home run or bust kind of guy, although he did – his strikeout rate went way down last year, which was pretty interesting trend to watch. Um, he was down to like 17% last year after being above 30% in 2020 and has been mostly in the mid-20s most of his career. So if he actually has cut his strikeout rate significantly, then maybe that's a different pl- different player. So that's one thing I'm going to be watching this year. But I just think that hitters like Freeman, as long as there's no you know uh, limits on shifting or infield pos- or infield or outfield positioning – are hard to find. And I think that, that that's like on paper, they seem very similar, but I think that like when it comes to, you know, playoff games, tight games, like Freddie Freeman is a, a, a much type tougher pitcher p- hitter to game plan around. I, I, I understand the differences in the ages, although I will say if it's true that the Rays actually offered him a six year deal, knowing that they're the Rays, <laughs> I actually feel even stronger in this conviction because the Rays definitely know what they're doing when it comes to um, player evaluation. So I think that like, I, I I get what the Braves did. Um, I think there's there's obviously the the sentimental the sentimental part of it, which is it would be it's cool when guys stay with one team. And I actually had a uh, uh, a Braves fan friend of mine point out to me. I think it's a good point that like Freeman is probably a borderline Hall of Famer, and if he stays in Atlanta, his chances of making the Hall of Fame are way better than than because you know one team guys always just have that going for it that helps their case. Um, so I think that's like sort of like a secondary thing as part of this part of this conversation, but I do think that like in the next couple of years, I would definitely, I would like have a strong preference for Freeman over Olson. Even with the big age difference? For the next couple of years, yes. I do think that like Freeman is a hitter because he's got such good bat to ball skills plus the power and someone who's actually sort of like weirdly improved, not improved, but he actually found, he like, he looked like he was going to be a good player like seven years ago. And then he like actually found a new level in his like mid to late twenties. So I think, yeah, I mean, of course, you know, three three to four years down the road, then it becomes a much, much tougher question. 
but like I, I'm, 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 maybe I'm just higher on Freeman than you are, or lower on you Olsen. Know, but, but but Olsen is actually better. I was doing a deep dive on Olsen this morning. One thing about him, he's much better against left-handed pitching than I realized. Um, and a career 804 OPS against lefties, 962 last year. You know, as a profile, he has the profile of the kind of guy who like crushes righty and struggles against lefties. So I was very, uh, I was, I was surprised to see that. Well, I mean, I think both of these guys that you have to take into account that for very in, in very different directions, their 2020 seasons are total frauds, right? Like if you look at Olsen, he was a wreck in 2020. So to say that he dropped his strikeout rate a lot, I mean, it's true, but that season was just really bad for him in ways he had never been bad before or since. And it's kind of the same thing for Freeman. I know he won the MVP, right? Here are Freeman's uh, OPS plus numbers for the last four years. Okay. In 2018, it was 139. In 2019, it was 135. In 2021, it was 133. And in 2020, it was 187. (laughs) One of these things does not look like the other things. Like the more we learn about 2020, the more I'm willing to discount it just because I don't, I don't think that's like someone's new normal. You know, it's what you did over two extremely weird months. And I get it. He still gets the MVP in his trophy case or I don't know. Do you get a trophy for the MVP? Some kind of medal? I guess I honestly don't it's know. Like a, it's, like a, it's like a, I think it's like a plaque. There you go. So he's got it. And I know it counts, but I don't know. I think over the next two years, which is the remaining two years of Olsen's contract, there's not much difference between them. And then after that, well, he's still five years younger. <laughs> and that's when it starts to matter for me. As I said, for me, some of this is like, it's much more of a subjective, like game within the game kind of stuff where I just think that like, there's a lot, there's like a lot more hitters like Matt Olson than there are Freddie Freeman. And it's just like that, that skill set is hard to find. And I might be, you know, I'm fully aware I may be sort of overvaluing this, but I think that like, I, when I watch games and I'm like thinking of myself in the position of, of, of the team playing the Braves in the postseason, I'm like, oh, how are we going to get Freeman out four times? Like, what are we going to do? Whereas Olsen doesn't feel like he's quite at that level. It's more like, oh, we can pitch this guy. He's dangerous. He's got big power, but we can pitch to him. You know, I wish you would continue that thought for like five more seconds because I'm vaguely remembering that I had, I wrote something for you last year about how Freeman went like oh for his first nine in the playoffs. Does that sound right? He was no, he was he was ter- he would I he was he was terrible to start the playoffs. I will not. I will not, uh, you know, it doesn't mean he can't slump, to be clear. I'm not saying he's infallible. <laughs> uh, he also was kind of not great for the first two months of last year, although that might have been some batted ball luck. And I don't know, it'd be interesting to see what happens in the future if um, the shifting rules are are limited, because I think that would actually hurt a guy like him who is tough to shift in the first place. All right, there's like 75 more moves that went on. Unfortunately, we're not going to be able to get to all of them. We're not going to talk about um, the Dodgers signing Hans or Alberto. I know that's why you're all here. Giants signing Jock Peterson. Uh, Zach Greinke's a Royal. That's fun. I like that a lot. I think the weirdest move before Chris Bryant to the Rockies was maybe the Yankees twins trade and kind of just what the Yankees are doing in general, right? So now the Yankees uh, have acquired Josh Donaldson to play third base. They have acquired Isaiah Kiner-Falefa, presumably to play shortstop. They have uh, re-signed Anthony Rizzo. They have traded Gio Urshela and Gary Sanchez to the twins they have three different first basemen on the depth chart who have all had some sense of accomplishment. Anthony Rizzo, Luke Voigt, DJ LeMahieu. Presumably Luke Voigt is a, I don't know, guardian, maybe, soon. And they still need a pitcher. And I have a ton of questions about center field and shortstop. And I got to tell you this, Yankee fans are furious. You'd think like, hey, Josh Donaldson's a really good player. Anthony Rizzo's a really good player, right? Uh, they're watching other teams go get Matt Olson and Freddie Freeman. And they are not pleased. 
And it's this weird spot where it's like, I think the Yankees are very, very good, but they might be the fourth best team in that division. And that's, I mean, that's a really interesting point. And Will Leach wrote about that today. The AL East, all four teams, sorry, sorry, Orioles, could make the playoffs this year. But that ordering, like the new playoff format is also like sort of like it's very stratified. Like there's th- there's three clear tiers. And like the difference between one, two, the drop off from being one, two to three, four is huge. And even the drop off from being three, four to four to five, six is pretty big too because you have to be on the road for three, three playoff games. So it's like that really matters. And right now I look at the, the – Again, I, I agree the Yankees are a very good team, especially when it comes to top-end talent, no question. But I just – I still cannot believe they're going to go into opening day with Isaiah Kiner-Falefa as their shortstop and Ben Rortvet as their catcher. I just don't – I just like – I mean, maybe it's going to happen at this point. It may actually happen. I just don't really believe it. And I feel like if you're doing that, then you're actually not serious about um, beating out the Blue Jays or – the Rays or the maybe the Red Sox for that matter. No, I mean, agreed. And if not Rurvit, then it's what Kyle Higashioka, you know, who uh, there's some things I like about him, but Isaiah Kyler Felipe is kind of a polarizing guy. Cause if you look back through his history, you know, he was an infielder and then the Rangers moved him to catcher and he wasn't very good there. And then he moved him to third base and he was fantastic there defensively. And then he was their shortstop all last year. And he has one of the wider disparities in defensive metrics. I think I could remember seeing Statcast outs above average. think he was pretty poor defensive run saved think he was pretty good hard to know what to make of that i will point out that he did have the fifth most errors in baseball we know that errors don't by themselves always tell the right story but you know you generally would like to make fewer of them than more of them and and he made a lot of them either way he's a below average hitter you know he's like 10 to 15 percent below average as a hitter he's a better fielder than glaber torres i think that's clear that's not a huge bar to clear i just i'm with you i don't understand how you can be in that division when you still have two top end shortstops out there, right? You could go get Carlos Correa. You could go get Trevor Story. You could make Kiner Falefa your backup infielder, play some third, play some second. You know, you'll trade Luke Voigt probably. And I know I can already hear what Yankee fans are saying. Well, we have Anthony Volpe and we have Oswald Peraza. And yeah, great. Shortstop prospects are great. When in the history of baseball has it ever been a problem to have too many good shortstops? Like never. Maybe one of those guys bust or get hurt. Maybe you have three good shortstops and someone has to play third base or gets traded for like an ace starter. I, I just don't see how that's a problem. It seems to me the worst outcome could be not doing anything and trying to get by with Connor Flaif as your starter this year. I just I just don't see it working. Yeah, I mean, in a world where the Dodgers are moving Trey Turner to second base with Corey Seager still there, like I'm not that worried about having a great shortstop and like, oh, Volpe or Praza comes up. It's like you'll find a home for them or you'll, you'll figure something out. I From the beginning, I thought the Yankees would end up with Carlos Correa or Corey Seager. They obviously did not sign Corey Seager. I know there's the whole thing of like, oh, the Yankees fans hate Carlos Correa. At this point, with Carlos Correa still being unsigned and Yankees front office and ownership being very cagey about if they're going to make any more big moves, I am like now firmer in my belief than ever that Carlos Correa is going to end up on the Yankees. Um, It just makes too much sense. And like they – like if you had Carlos Correa, then you can get probably get away with Ben Workford as your starting catcher, right? Like it's Mm – it changes the whole dynamic of the team in a meaningful way. I'm very curious to see how this plays out. And the Twins, their trading partner in all this, right? I mean, Gio Rochelle has been like a good player, right? Like him, him, he's been very valuable to the Yankees. He wasn't great last year, but he's had a couple of really good years for the Yankees. Gary Sanchez, um, classic change of scenery c- candidate. I kind I like this trade for the Twins, but they also need a shortstop. So these two teams are kind of at the pivot point of Story and Correa. There's a world in which the Yankees sign Correa, Correa 
and the Twins go and sign Story? Because I don't think the Twins are going to sign Correa, but I could very easily see them signing Story. I, I like it depending on what is still to come because they also made two other moves, right? They went out and they traded for Sonny Gray from Cincinnati. So they took on some money there. But remember how they got kind of flip for 24 hours in the first place, which was they traded Mitch Garver away to Texas. And I know Garver can't stay healthy, but his bat is legit. So the Twins were this team that we thought would be good last year. Everything fell apart. They were terrible. And they seem pretty clear that they want to be good again this year. It just If you're trying to be good this year, you probably want Mitch Garver. You probably want Josh Donaldson. Uh, you know, and you want Sonny Gray. So are they like selling money or are they taking on money? Do they have a shortstop? Where's another starting pitcher coming from? Like, this seems like it's still very incomplete. I just, I don't know what to make of them. I like that they are going to be competitive. I I just, I think they need like four more moves. They need to sign Trevor Story like yesterday. I'm watching them right now play the Red Sox and they're getting smashed. And I know that doesn't mean literally anything, but they need a shortstop because it's not going to Blanco. <laughs> No, I mean, I actually, I, I, I like, I actually, I like their lineup, especially if you can, if you can sign Story, that's a big if, and you move Jorge Polanco second and get Luis Arise, who's a personal favorite, but probably better suited in a utility role. Then, like that team, I think you know Gary Sanchez is, is like him hitting thirty home runs for this team would not surprise me. Um, you know, so like I, I, the pitching is still is still a little short. They've got Dilly, Dylan Bundy as their number, Dylan Bundy is their number two starter right now. So that's probably in some ways that might be the bigger problem because even if they sign Story, there's not really another pitcher out there unless they make another trade. Um, I guess they could bring back Michael Veneto, who I like, but I'm not sure really raises raises their ceiling in any meaningful way. I mean, he doesn't have to. I think they need to raise their floor. I mean, and he seems to enjoy it there very much. So I'm surprised that hasn't happened yet. All right, let's talk about the Mariners. Is it safe to say that the Mariners, this is mean. I don't mean to say it like this. The Mariners were a little bit of a fraud last year. I know they won 90 games. They did it in a like wildly unsustainable way because they got outscored by, what, 60 runs or something like that. I know they had a good bullpen, so credit is there. Uh, but it sort of seemed like a fluke and a half. And so when you think about what were they building from? To me, they weren't starting from the base of a 90-win team, right? They were starting from the base of a 79-win team. And you can see it getting better because Julio Rodriguez is going to be there and Jared Kelenic looked a lot better at the end of the season. And they have a really good farm system and there's a lot to like about it. But you always felt, man, that team needs a bat. I loved the idea of Marcus Simeon there. That actually obviously didn't happen. And I think you and I both thought maybe Michael Conforto would be that guy. Instead, it's Jesse Winker who's really, really good. I think it's hard to underrate a guy who actually started the All-Star game last year, <laughs> but I, I feel like he is underrated. Like nobody talks about Jesse Winker in that, you know, upper echelon hitter kind of category. And I feel like that's unfair and it's not going to help him to go from the Cincinnati ballpark to the Seattle ballpark, certainly. But you look at him, he is a legit bat. So now he's out there in this outfield DH configuration with Mitch Hanniger, Kelnick, Rodriguez when he comes up, uh, Kyle Lewis, I think, is uh, injured, but he'll be back at some point. Like that's that's a really potentially extremely good outfield, and they took on Eugenio Suarez's money, and that might be dead money, but he hit 31 home runs last year with a really very lousy on base percentage, so he was a below average hitter. But if you look at the last six weeks or so of the season, I think he hit eight homers in September because he finally started getting the ball off the ground again. And I don't think he's that 49 home run guy we saw a couple years ago, partially because he's not playing in Cincinnati. But if you can get him to just be like a competent hitter, add another bat to that lineup, uh, maybe I'm actually buying into Seattle. Like, I think they're pretty clearly the second best team in the division. I don't think I would have said that a month ago. 
it's it's funny. Suarez actually he ended up having a pretty similar year last year to the Mariners' departed shortstop Kyle Seager, who was like a feel good story last year because he was like this guy had been there their whole career. He hit like thirty something home runs, but he also had like a two ninety OBP. So like the end, like the season he had ended up very like pretty similar to the season that Suarez had, where Suarez was seen as like the big disappointment as this guy the Reds had sort of tried to tried to build around. I mean, that trade, I mean, I don't think they gave up anyone they're really going to miss. Um, it was well, kind Williamson, of a no-brainer. That pitcher, that pitcher looks really good. Brandon He's interesting. Yes, he yeah. does. He, he struck out like 13 per nine in the minors last yeah. year. Um, but it's still a no-brainer you make from for the Mariners. You know, my issue with the Mariners last year, in addition to uh, the fact that they were outscored, was just that, like, it wasn't really driven by the young guys. You know, it was a lot of, like, you know, Mitch Hanniger had a great year, but he's now 31. And he's heading into free agency. Like, it, it did, you know, Ty France had a good year, but, like, is that really the guy you're really – you know, you, you if, if it had been behind a great year from Kelnick and Kyle Lewis, you would have been like, okay, they're building towards something, but those guys were either didn't play in Lewis's case or not especially good in Kelnick's case. That said – with Winker and Suarez, I think they've they've sort of probably solidified or maybe even raised their floor a little bit. They'll have Julio Rodriguez waiting in the wings all season. That's going to be like he could be that kind of guy, maybe like Acuna and Soto were like three years ago, where they came up and like helped playoff teams right away. So that's like that's that's or I guess Wander even Wander Franco last year. Um, that's an interesting storyline for me to watch this season. They haven't made the playoffs since 2001. They just expanded the playoffs. Man, this is kind of the year, right? This is it. Right? This is it. Toronto, Seattle, ALCS. That'd be fun. (laughs) I'd watch that. All right. We're going to get to two more moves before we take a break and welcome on Keegan Matheson to talk about the Blue Jays. Uh, Kyle Schorber is a Philly. This one's really interesting to me. So here's Kyle Schorber's last three winters. Two years ago, he got non-tendered by the Cubs. They chose not to even extend him a contract. One year ago, he signed a mere $1 million deal, or excuse me, a one-year deal with Washington. And uh, I guess that was actually the same winter, but whatever. Now he's signing a four-year, $79 million contract with the Phillies. And I like it a lot in the sense that the Phillies need offense very badly, and that's going to be a fun fit of a ballpark for him. But I also, I have questions about what they're going to do next, right? So you have Bryce Harper, who's fantastic. And JT Armuto is one of the best catchers in the game. And for a couple of very good starters in Nola and Wheeler and um, Ranger Suarez, who was like unbelievable last year. And yet they haven't done anything about that defense. Like the, Schwarber is not a good outfielder. They could play DH sometimes, but they have like four guys that should play DH. And the left side of their infield, I Didi Gregorius had a miserable year on both sides of the ball. Alec Bohm had a miserable year on both sides of the ball. I just, I don't know how they can stop either. Like that could be a place for Carlos Correa because I like Schwarber adding length to the lineup, but there's just, there's so many other questions about like where this team is going to me. I mean, the, the Correa there would make a lot of sense for the reason you mentioned also just because, you know, Dave Dombrowski, their president of baseball operations has long been known for, you know, surprising people with big contracts to superstar players. Um, it's an uneven roster, as you said, uh, they, you know, they just brought, brought back Odubel Herrera to play center field. Like, it's like, you don't really know what, they like it, it's unclear. They they feel like they've they've been in this like seventy seven to eighty three win range for like um, eight years now, and it feels like they're still there. What can they do, or what will they do? Or are they done? I, I guess that's the question I have. I, I don't know. I don't know how much more they have in them, but I also feel like if you just do this, it's a third place team. Um, I guess. I mean, they could be a Conforto destination. You know, they don't really yeah. have a left oh, fielder like right that. now. But yeah, again, I he's, Schwarber he, was the left fielder. <laughs> I think Schwarber's gonna be the DH. 
Uh, I mean, but he's got to play outfield sometime because like Bohm should be the DH, you know, and Hoskins should be the DH. <laughs> and we're going to get to one last big move before we take a break and come back. The Cubs signed Japanese outfielder Seiya Suzuki, and this one's really interesting to me because he is the kind of guy that I think like a lot of teams are interested in. And there was smoke. He might go to the Padres and he might go to the Red Sox and he might go to the Dodgers. And when he ended up with the Cubs, that was really not the destination I thought he would go in because I kind of don't know what the Cubs are doing. Like, it's somewhat similar to what we talked about with the Rockies. Like, hey, great. Add good players. Um, in this case, he's 27. He might be there the next time the Cubs are good. I just don't really see that happening over the next year or two. Uh, but Suzuki's like a really, really nice player to have. Uh, if you look back at what he's done in the, in the Japanese leagues, last year he had 38 home runs. You know, uh, we actually talked about him, it feels like a year ago, but I guess it was about three months ago with, with Jim Allen, who is a uh, based in Tokyo and is a, a Japanese baseball expert. He's, um, Suzuki has a cannon of a throwing arm. I don't know offhand if he's going to displace Jason Hayward from right or, or slot into left, but this was a lineup that needed a lot of help, and it was a team that needed some excitement. And between him and Marcus Stroman, this is going to be a, a much more interesting team this year. Totally. And I, I mean, Suzuki is one of the players I'm most fascinated to to watch this year. As I think we talked about with Jim Allen, like he doesn't fit a clear profile of like a lot of like position players who've come from um, Japan before him. It was like sort of like a a right-handed hitting power hitter. Like they haven't really seen many, any of those. Um, so I don't really have, you know, it's more like I don't, I don't I know nothing about him other than what I've read about him and what Jim said. Um, you know, looking at the Fangraph projections for him, they're all they're, depending on which projection system you look, they're kind of all over the map. So um, I think we'll just have to wait and see. But I'm 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 very interested to see what he can do with the Cubs. Yeah, me too. He, he's probably one of the guys that I'm most interested in watching this year, just because he's kind of hyped and I haven't seen him. And I, I think it would be really cool if he could go to Wrigley Field and become the next big star there. We're going to take a quick break. We will be back with Keegan Matheson, who covers the Blue Jays for MLB.com. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And we're back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast, Mike Petrillo and Matt Myers. And we are joined by Keegan Matheson, who covers the Blue Jays for MLB.com. And Keegan, I've been following you on Twitter all morning, and I've really enjoyed it because about every five minutes you post a uh, live BP session between some Blue Jays pitcher and some Blue Jays hitter. And I really got to ask you straight away, you posted a video of Kevin Gossman against Vladimir Guerrero Jr., and it looks to me, at least from the video that I watched, that Vladdy hit that ball all the way back to Toronto. And I'm just wondering if the sound was as loud in person as it seemed through the internet. <laughs> that was. I, I'd love to get an exit velo on that. It was uh, a little too low to clear the wall. I think it almost went through it, but um, amazing. He was uh, he, he was asking for ball four before that, and I think Gosman would have uh, preferred that in hindsight. I, I just want to ask you kind of about the feeling around the team. Obviously, excitement, right? But here's the thing that stood out to me. You look at the Blue Jays last year. Uh, they were really an exciting team down the stretch and like the quote unquote team nobody wanted to play, right? And then they lose the American League Cy Young winner in Robbie Ray. 
and then they lose one of the top three MVP finishers in Marcus Simeon. And for most teams and most fan bases, I think that'd be crushing. And yet, based on what they've done since, every Blue Jays fan I know is kind of doing somersaults. And I, I really think that says a lot about how happy everyone is. And I'm just sort of wondering, like, you know, you, you're from Canada. You've been following this team for a long time. Can you remember a Blue Jays fan base like as pleased as they are today? Really can. See, even guys, when you go back to 15 and 16, that's really what woke baseball back up in Toronto. And that was an incredible run, but wasn't built with a young core like you see right now. And there is something special about a young core that fans have been excited about. And Blue Jays fans, I, I think even more than most fan bases, are nuts about prospects. And when you have guys like Vladdy and Bo Bichette coming up, uh, that hype train really gets people going. So it's uh, been a lot of excitement around camp. Uh, people are, are certainly into what's been happening in the offseason in terms of the Chapman edition, Rios extension, Gossman edition. And it's hard to replace a Ray and a Semyon. It's going, you know, the boring answer is that it needs to be a bit of everybody who does it. But I, I think those pieces are there. And having expectations, I think, is what gets people going. You know, last year, expectations were high, but it was still a young team figuring it out. And now it's a team that is supposed to do something. And the bar is much higher. It's no longer about reaching the postseason and participating. It's about actually doing something when they get there. Now, before we dig even deeper into the current roster, I want to ask you about one guy who's not on the roster uh, and that's Freddie Freeman, because there were some murmurs that maybe the Blue Jays were were interested, were pursuing him. Did you ever get the sense that they were seriously in on Freddie Freeman and what that would have looked like had they been able to pull that off? Definitely interested in Freeman, and you can even have Schwarber next to that as, as another big lefty bat. But in Freeman going to those years and those numbers, the Blue Jays certainly looked at that. Adding a, a big lefty bat would be ideal for this lineup. It's very righty-heavy. If you put Santiago Espinal at second base, it's an, an already lineup some days. And that's fine. You know, I, I like some chaos, an already lineup. And if it works, it works. But traditionally, you'd like to talk about lo- working in one or two lefties. We'll see how that works. I, I think it can work very lopsided. But Freeman would have been an extremely interesting addition. There's that Canadian angle that people would have loved. And going into Schwarber as well. I think a le- big lefty bat at some point will continue to be a priority, but um, man, that uh, that had people going for a while, and any way they can get some Canadian content, I think people are going to uh, double up the enthusiasm. Well, listen, since you brought up two different aspects there, you brought up the team's lack of a left-handed bat, because it's mostly Kevin Biggio, and you brought up how many fans would absolutely love to see a Canadian in the lineup. Tell me how they're getting Joey Votto to DH or play first base this year. <laughs> there's a segue baby that uh i i think he would sell a million jerseys in an hour joey Votto would that would uh that would be like russell martin times five at this point it's uh it's one to dream on i don't know if we see it but uh yeah. you're gonna keep hearing that over and over through the year but, the but, trade deadline as long as the reds don't make a world series run we'll hear that around the trade deadline i, I think you'll keep to hear joey Votto. But if not him, then who, you know, because like Corey Dickerson came off the board. Jock Peterson came off the board. There's not that many lefties left who'd fill the roster. Do you have any feeling on who that might be? Yeah, looking at this point of the year, it probably requires a bit of a long game as well. This is something you can find during the season if you need to. You know, someone like a Conforto, I think, did make a level of sense um, for the Blue Jays or does um, that outfield picture. 
could be adjusted. If there's one place where the Blue Jays could make some major league moves, it might be reshuffling that outfield depth picture. But in terms of those top options, it has thinned out a bit. You know, certainly with Schwarber, I think would have been a, an easy fit in this lineup as well. But that might be one kind of like the bullpen guys where it's something you figure out as the year goes on. You know, in, in a perfect world, you're going lefty, righty, lefty, righty. But a bunch of righties can work. It might be a, a little chaotic, but it'll be fun uh, to see how that happens, especially when you're getting towards the playoffs, I think is my concern. Because if you really match up in a playoff series, that's when it gets dangerous. In the middle of June, July, nobody's really trying to match up against you series to series. It's just whoever's starting the next day. But once you're getting into game three or game four of a series, in an ALDS or CS, uh, that's when you might want a lefty. Now, one of the unusual, I guess is one way to put it, storylines that will follow the Blue Jays this year, I think, is the fact that um, unvaccinated players cannot come play in Canada. And as we know, there are a reasonable number of unvaccinated players across MLB, right? And I actually saw Rob Arthur tweet something that said, Rob Arthur is a baseball analyst for, I guess, Baseball Prospectus and 538. I'm not uh, um, I'm not exactly sure where he's running now, but he wrote, he had something along the long lines of, with lots of unvaccinated MLB players, the Blue Jays will have the best home field advantage in baseball history. They should go. They should go all in. There will probably never be a, stru- a better structural advantage. I thought that was a really interesting thing to point out. And I guess I'm curious: is that something that you've heard discussed around camp? Do you think this is something that's like on the minds of the front office? The fact that the Blue Jays are going to get a lot of ch- likely get a lot of chances to play teams who might be without some of their better players. Yeah, it has to be, and you're hearing it more now. Um, you know, now that we are back in camp and you're, you're seeing the big leaguers around and baseball's moving again, that's suddenly become one of the bigger talking points because I agree with that. I, I don't think there has been a, a bigger or a more unique potential advantage um, in recent memory in baseball. And the Blue Jays, um, I don't expect that to be an issue for them in terms of vaccination rates going back and forth across the border. But for some teams, it would be, especially if you're dealing with top of roster players who suddenly are being replaced by a triple A guy coming across. Now, there's an easy solution for that for those teams and players, but it's going to be a major issue as we get into the season if that continues the way it is right now. And for the Blue Jays, you know, they had to deal with playing in Dunedin and Buffalo for two years. So they've had their own side of that, but you take advantages where you can get them, even though this is not an expected one. This is not a shift. This is not having some hot metrics. But it really does pose a fascinating dynamic, I think, for the Blue Jays. And it's also something that they've had to consider um, when you're acquiring players. You know, we've we've had this conversation a lot, um, I guess, in the NBA, really, with Kyrie Irving in New York. And that conversation comes up here in Toronto because, well, what if they play the Raptors in the postseason? Advantage Raptors. Well, you could be looking at that every day in the MLB regular season. You know, I can't believe we've gotten this far into talking to you without mentioning that the Blue Jays have Matt Chapman now, which is kind of a big deal. Yeah, he's really good. And I can tell you, I watched a lot of Blue Jays games last year, and one of the weaknesses that stood out to me was that the infield defense just wasn't that great. You know, and Chapman is, if he's not the best defensive third baseman in baseball, it's it's him or Arenado. And I remember when he was back with the A's, back when Marcus Simeon was playing shortstop, there was a lot of talk about how, you know, Chapman was so good, his range was so good that he helped Simeon a little bit by just me- making for like less ground he had to cover. 
And I'm curious what you think about that happening in Toronto as well, because Bo Bichette is a young superstar, but he's not really regarded as like the best defensive shortstop in baseball. And just based on what you've seen from his strengths and weaknesses, do you think having Chapman next to him can help Bichette play up a little bit? Definitely. And that's something Charlie Montoyo mentioned yesterday, allowing Bo Bichette to play a little more up the middle where he's not being asked to range too far to one side or the other. And Bichette, I think, from the beginning of the year to the end, improved and slowed down a bit uh, defensively. Early in the year when you saw some of those errors, a lot of the time it would be a ball straight at him, but he would be moving 100 miles an hour. And that's what makes him very special as a hitter, that max effort, hair on fire style play. But defensively, there were some times where he needed to slow down and breathe and make the play. He did a much better job of that as the year went on. But having Chapman to his right now has to be an incredible advantage for him. Uh, Allow him to play a little tighter version of defense, a little more focused on up the middle with Chapman's incredible range. And that will be a real gift, I think, for some of these Blue Jays pitchers, especially when you look at Kikuchi or Hunjin Ryu with their ground ball rates. They've got to be the happiest dudes in this complex because they just lost 0.2, 0. 0.3 after ERA, maybe, depending on where those ground balls go next season. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up Kikuchi because you know he had a pretty good first half for the Mariners last year, made the all-star team, and then just totally collapsed down the stretch. And pretty much everyone has made the same joke, which is, well, look what Pete Walker did to Robbie Ray. He's going to do that to Yusei Kikuchi. And I wonder how much of that you think is real or just like that's the obvious thing to say. Like, obviously, Walker is very, very well respected, but have they already talked about what kind of changes they're hoping to make with Kikuchi? Well, Pete Walker is one of the most popular men in Canada. I've got to tell you guys, he's a, uh, <laughs> the Blue Jays pitching coach is regularly trending on Twitter, which is a, a real accomplishment. And, um, and, and rightfully so. You know, Pete is, uh, gets incredible reviews from his pitchers and, and did some incredible things with Robbie Ray and many others. But I, I think with Kikuchi, reminds me a bit, very different pitcher, but in terms of that fine line, a bit of Steven Matz last year for the Blue Jays, where if he had his top-end velocity, everything worked and it looked great. But even if he was just a touch below his top velocity, that's when it was tougher. And I think that was a real defining thing for Kikuchi last year with the Mariners. Now, keeping that velocity up is key for him. Establishing the fastball is key for him to get to some of these secondaries. But there's such a difference, and that's what makes it tantalizing if you're a team like Toronto. A 4.97 career ERA next to a 3 by $36 million contract you don't exactly draw a straight line there, but the Blue Jays see upside. You see that in 2021, the first half with Kikuchi and Steven Matz is an example, Robbie Ray, an example of these hard throwing lefties. The Blue Jays have done really well with. So this is, this is betting on track record a little bit, but this is also betting on upside. uh, I think this is not like three or four years ago, signing Tanner Roark or Jaime Garcia as a stopgap inning eater. Number five, this is about chasing some legitimate upside and, and unlocking something there. And if you can get the good Kikuchi as your number five, that is money in the bank. That's a fantastic rotation. Barrios, Gossman, Ryu, Manoa, having Kikuchi at the back end looks great, but they've got to unlock that top end. And I think it really starts very simply with top end velocity. No, man, Blue Jays fans loved Tanner Roark. Absolutely loved him. He was great. <laughs> The diesel engine, baby. No. Listen, the the other thing that I think really held back this team last year was that for most of the season, like the bullpen was a total tire fire, right? Just like constantly blowing games. And it got a lot better in the second half of the season, mostly because they turned it over, you know, and they've continued to do that. Like Adam Simber came midway through last year, and Trevor Richards and Mimi Garcia. 
And now you might have some of the guys who are going to fight for that number five in the bullpen, like Ross Stripling, maybe Nate Pearson. It just feels like a totally different group. Like, are, are you a lot more confident in this bullpen not to hurt the team as much as they did for a lot of last year? It's definitely better. Now, there are points, guys, last year. I remember early June, I believe it was, into July. That team and all of those blown games by the bullpen, I can't believe that was the same team as late September. That felt like three years in between. They eventually figured it out. Adam Simber was a fantastic move. Getting him over, working in the late innings, really helped calm things down. I think they're in a better place. Uh, I think there's room for certainly improvement at this point, and that's one thing that could come during the season as well as they ramp up because having Jordan Romano on that back end is, is a fantastic place to start. Romano was dynamite last year. You love him as your closer. But think about mid-October. Teams that are making it into the CS and the World Series, they have a Jordan Romano and then another Romano and another Romano and down the list. So there's room to add there, but Pearson is really the name that interests me. He's being stretched out and kept as a starter for now. But I'm really fascinated to see if there's some sort of hybrid role there where he can be throwing a couple of innings out of the bullpen, making a spot start if you need, throwing 100-ish innings, maybe. Now, getting healthy is definitely step number one and staying healthy. But man, he is too talented not to be making a major difference if he's healthy. All right, last question before we let you go, Keegan. Um, you know, last year at the deadline, they traded – some top prospects to get Barrios. They just traded a bunch of prospects to get Chapman. To me, this suggests that they see themselves as kind of the team to beat this year, kind of ready to go all in. I guess it's a two-part question. Do you think they see themselves as the favorite in the AL East now? And do you think they'd be prepared to make another blockbuster trade involving prospects uh, this summer in service of that goal? I do and I do. Because when you look at Chapman coming in with two years of team control left, not everything will be tied to that, of course, but you have to look at the window of Guerrero and Bichette and some of this young core. And you see it in any sport. When you have a really incredibly built young core, eventually they all approach free agency at the same, same time. And that's when difficult decisions come around. And in baseball for the Blue Jays, that'll be coming in two, let's say, three years. Now, there's ways to sustain this. And the Blue Jays, I think, are doing a smart job of setting themselves up where they are not all the way in. They can still do it next year, the year after. But looking over these next couple of years, why not load up? When will you be in a better situation than this? It's very hard to imagine that. So looking down the road, the Blue Jays have kept Moreno, Arelvis Martinez, Jordan Groshans, who will be three top 100 prospects on our list. And yes, all three of them should have incredibly bright futures. But look back through a lot of great trades in Blue Jays history. When you look at, uh, you know, even the same conversation about the Chapman trade, but go back to Troy Tulowitzki. David Price, the Josh Donaldson deal is a great example, where at the time people are saying, oh my God, we just gave up a prospect that's going to be a star for 15 years. More often than not, that doesn't happen. You know, we, we, we would love to think that every prospect turns out to be exactly what they're hoped to be. And I love it when that happens, but as the team trading the big package, sometimes you're going to trade a Fernando Tatis and you're going to hate it and lose sleep for 20 years. But a lot of times you can survive it. So I think the pieces are there. The top end ones are there. And again, when will you have a better shot than now with this young core where they're at in their team control years? Keegan, I'm going to leave you with this because I saw someone tweet it the other day and I forget who, but I found it fascinating. This is going to be Vladimir Guerrero Jr.'s fourth season in the major leagues. And it's going to be the first one where he's going to play a full home schedule in Toronto. <laughs> and I think that's wild. And, if, and it might... 
and it might, it might, I guess, apply somewhat to you because I think you're kind of on a similar time frame on the Blue Jays beat for us. And I just think that's that's so cool after everything that's happened over the last couple of years that not only is this a quote unquote regular season, but the team is so good and interesting and fun. And, you know, you've got guys like Guerrero and Bichette and this entire rotation. And I think maybe outside of uh, Canada, the Blue Jays are a team that everybody kind of wants to see win just because they're super fun. So listen, make sure you follow Keegan Matheson on Twitter, follow him uh, at bluejays.com and uh, Keegan, thanks for your time. You got it guys. Thank you. We'll be right back on the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. And our thanks to Keegan Matheson, who covers the Blue Jays for MLB.com. As you can tell, we only really hit like a fraction of the news that's happening this week. And I got to tell you, that makes this week a lot more fun than most of the preceding weeks. And I'm excited to see what's going to happen over the upcoming days. That will do it for this week's podcast. Don't miss an episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions, leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. See you next week.